This episode of After Dark is sponsored by True Detective Night Country, which is set in Alaska. It stars Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese, and it's available now to watch on Sky TV. At the bottom of the ocean, somewhere off the shores of the North Slope of Alaska, is a house. Outside it is a dog. Inside is a woman called Nileayuk, or Sedna, the lady who lives in the ocean. She's the goddess of the sea, the one responsible for autumn storms that crash against the land and for the life in the water. Despite her great power, she still bears the scars from the day long ago that she became a goddess. Because where her fingers should be, there are only stumps. Stumps left behind by her father's knife as he cut away the fingers that clung to the side of his boat. Her crime? Disobedience after he bade her marry. As Sedna sank into the water that day, the blood poured from her wounds and became sea mammals that now swim in the sea. And the dog, really her shapeshifter husband and the reason she could not, would not marry, dashed out from the land to join her in their new home at the bottom of the ocean. Welcome to After Dark. I'm Anthony. And I'm Maddie. And today's episode is sponsored by True Detective Night Country. I am so excited for this episode. It is set in Alaska, just as True Detective is. And today we are going to be exploring two different and often opposing sets of Alaskan myths or stories and how that fits into history. First, there is the vast, complex storytelling traditions of indigenous Alaskan communities. And then there are the myths created by American settlers and colonists, which talk about myths of Alaska as a wilderness, the so-called last frontier, myths that turn colonizers into so-called true Alaskans. Our guest today is Professor Tia Tidwell. Tia is Professor of Alaska Native Studies at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and she belongs to the Nunamute people of Anaktuvuk Pass. So Tia, first things first, welcome to After Dark. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being our guide today. Now, we're going to come on to talk about your work on settler fantasies in Alaska. First things first, How's the weather there? So it is currently negative 38 degrees Celsius outside, which is an experience to live through. I personally like this feeling. A lot of people find it extremely alarming. I think both responses make a lot of sense. But you walk outside like this and you just take a deep breath in and the inside of your nostrils just completely freezes. It's such an icy feeling <laughs> it's that is so wild to me here we're Anthony and I are recording here in the UK and we've just had very by by contrast very gentle storms that have hit the UK and every time that we have anything close to 
minorly severe weather in this country. We completely freak out across Britain, across Ireland. Everything grinds to a halt. Trains are cancelled. I cannot imagine what would happen to us all if we went out and it was minus, what did you say, Tia? 38? Minus 38? Minus 38 Celsius, yes. Yeah. We have our own kind of freakouts too. So every once in a while, it will rain on top of the snow and ice. And if it rains here, everything, everything shuts down. And it's because it freezes into this thin layer of ice on top of everything. And so it's almost like, you know, kids are going to school at negative 40. They're playing outside at recess up to negative 20. But if it rains, the world stops. That, that is, it's hard to get my head around. And you guys also have polar night as well in Alaska where it's dark for is yes. it it's months of the year is that right so it depends on where you are the story of Sedna is a story that belongs to the Arctic coast, the circumpolar Inuit people. And up there, it does get very dark for a really long time. I lived there in Ikyagvik when I was a child, but I live here in the interior right now and it never is really completely dark all day. We still get, we get like some, I think you would call it dusk or something, but it is, it does feel like I should be hibernating and not saying things on a podcast right now. <laughs> I, I often feel quite jealous of that environment. I think probably one of very few people in that this idea of eternal night is very appealing to me for some reason. It really does feel like something, I don't know, I'm constantly drawn to it. I, 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 the nearest I got was I spent some time in Iceland once and we had quite a lot of, of darkness. I think we maybe got two or three hours during December, but that was about it. But I kind of loved it. But I presume to live in it endlessly is somewhat tougher, right? Yes. Yeah, it can get inside you. It, it becomes... Um a feeling. <laughs> it becomes a feeling of darkness. You know, I do like it because it it does signal to us that it's time to rest. And I think in the maybe capitalist-driven time-watching world that we live in, we come out of touch with the seasons. And here in Alaska, the seasons don't let you do that. They really are going to guide the way that, that people are in the world. And I think alongside this darkness that we get right now. In the summertime, we have this delirious light that is, I mean, it, this, you never experience darkness in the summer here. And it, the energy that people have, it, it really is, it's kind of a delirium. Yeah. You mentioned Sedna there, and we heard something of her mythology, her story at the beginning of this episode. I'm just wondering what role storytelling has in dealing with life in Alaska. You talk about how the weather, the light can kind of become part of your interior world and your experience of being there. Is storytelling a way of combating that, of understanding it? Is it at odds with the landscape or, or is it something that helps you to sort of work with it whilst you're living there? You know, I, I really like the way you're phrasing that question, but I, I think that the way that you're talking about story and landscape is a common experience for all of humanity. Every single culture creates stories to understand the world that they are experiencing and how they imagine their connections to place and to each other and to the non-human world. I think, in, so I'm Anupiak. I am f from Anuktuvik Pass, which is in the Brooks Range. We're actually Anupiak interior Anupiak people. But I also spent time as a child in Utkyagvik, which is on the coast. And of course, Sedna is a sea goddess. And, you know, I think I want to 
share a little bit about the importance of storytelling and the care that is really important to give to our words because I'm a little nervous talking about Sedna because, of course, she's extremely powerful. Alongside the way that every human culture creates stories to understand our world, every human culture has this concept of the way that speech creates action around us. And I think within British history, you have John Austin, the British philosopher, who comes up with this concept of speech acts, which is that the concept of the action that coincides and happens because of speech. So if I were to call your name Maddie or Anthony, you might turn to me and ask or look at me. And so my speech has created that action in the world. And recently, when I was in my home community of Anaktuvik Pass, I was visiting with one of our elders, which is always a privilege, and he was sharing stories with me about his life. And I was asking him if there was anything that he would like me to share with my students at the university, the young people here, to kind of help guide them. And he wanted to emphasize the power of speech and the power of words. And he was saying, when we speak, it's like magic. There, There's power in, in our words. And so he looked at me and he was like, look at you. I've, I've cast a spell on you with my words right now. You're looking at me. You're sitting still. You're listening. The things that I'm saying are changing the way you see the world. And I think that if we think about storytelling in that tradition of um, it's more than just telling a story. Our speech becomes part of the world. And so I think because of that, when, when speaking of figures like Sedna, it's so important to have those conversations in a way that is respectful of her power and her reality because I don't want to accidentally provoke her. <laughs> yeah. Tia, it's so, well, it's it's actually quite moving listen, listening to you speak and very, it's reminding me of something. So I'm, I, I'm Irish and that storytelling tradition that is with us in Ireland is is quite upfront as well. And, and we we experience a lot of our past through storytelling and, and probably shape a lot of our future through it too. One of the things that reminded me, we, we did an episode on the Banshee very early days when we were recording After Dark and myself and one of my friends who's an actress, Siobhan McSweeney, we, we were talking about the Banshee and we were talking very lightheartedly about the Banshee. But Siobhan and I were exchanging voice notes afterwards and there was something of that too where we said, we probably should have been a little bit more reverential towards the the idea of the banshee, even though we don't carry that figure with us in the same way, perhaps, as people in previous times did. But just the power that that language has, I, I'd never looked at it like that. It was a feeling for me at the time, but actually you've just verbalized it there. And it's it's incredibly moving because it links us to the past in a very immediate and real way. Yeah. And, you know, within Nupak traditions, there's two kinds of stories. Um, 
The first kind of story is a story about your own experience. So these are the things that you yourself have experienced in your life, and you, you share those in order to entertain and to teach and to be known by your community. Um, but the other kind of story is the, is the stories like Sedna, like the story of the Northern Lights, like the little people, like other figures that I'm actually just a little bit too superstitious to name here on this podcast. And those stories, they have a lot of protocol around how you talk about them. And I think, you know, we shared one version of a Sedna story at the start of this podcast, but I think there's that's one of many different ways that uh, because Sedna is a as a sea goddess belongs to the Inuit circumpolar Arctic and so the story of her and her name it is sometimes unique to the to each community um, and I think that none of that there is no there is no one truth of Sedna right it's not a competition of well this is the true version it's she can have many truths because she's a, a powerful multifaceted woman but i you know if i think about the components of the story of Sedna she is a woman who was extraordinarily beautiful extraordinarily competent graceful knowledgeable of the land and she belongs to a time from before, before we had sea mammals, before we had whales and seals and salmon. And something happens where she, where she is in relationship with a shapeshifter, which is a taboo. You, it's a taboo to be in a relationship with a shapeshifter. And sometimes she's in a relationship with a shapeshifter because of love, like in the story that, that you shared. And sometimes she's in love or she's in relationship with a shapeshifter because of shamanistic trickery. But the defiance of Sedna is that she refuses to marry. She refuses to marry in every story, any of the strong men of the village. And then after that, it's kind of like the the rupture of the story is kind of catalyzed by this refusal to marry. And also there there's some kind of rupture that happens between her and her father, where she is thrown over the umiak or falls from the umiak or is pushed from the umiak. And she, she tries to climb back. And as she tries to climb back on, her fingers are cut off one by one and her forearm maybe is cut off. And as she falls to the ocean floor, instead of dying her she gives us this beautiful gift of all the sea mammals that we are so reliant on as a people in order to live a good and bountiful life you know i think a lot of people imagine the arctic as a place that's fairly desolate or barren but the arctic for people who think of that place as a homeland is a place of abundance and a place of plenty and a place of a good life and I think that what becomes really powerful about Sedna is that although she became who she is by like this refusal to kind of marry and this rupture that happens between her and her father, her power is so great as a woman that we all become reliant on her favor forever afterwards. And so ultimately, it, it kind of shows that equality between men and women that is really inherent to Inupiaq culture. 
Yeah. Tia, I'm really fascinated by the fact that most of these stories are coming down initially through oral storytelling. And now there's all kinds of ways that particularly the Sedna's story, you know, you can watch people telling the story on YouTube, for example. There's a lot more sort of avenues. And we're going to talk about some of the storytelling modes or genres around Alaskan landscape and mythology. But the Sedna story in particular, it's it's a very ancient form of storytelling and her story is sort of tied to the human history of the landscape and possibly the history of the landscape before people. Do you, th- do you feel that that's right? When I think about how old the story of Sedna is, to me, it, it really is the beginning of the world. So in a lot of stories, Sedna has children with this shapeshifter and half of her children are Anupak. They're Inuit. They're the, the origin of the way that we think of ourselves as people is as the real people. That's what it means, the real people. And half of her shape-shifting children, they leave, they go out into the world, and the Inuit Inupiaq people have this knowledge that they're going to come back and that they have this shape-shifting trickery within them. And for us, that really explains kind of when, you know, different European or Russian or American colonizers and settler colonizers came back. That was our way of understanding. We knew that they would. They they were Sedna's um, children. Tia, can I just ask, how does it feel to live with these stories? Because the way you're describing this is, to me, feels very present tense and that you walk with these stories and they can morph and change, but they become part of you and wider Alaskan culture and cultures. I'm just wondering how it feels to live in the present tense with all these stories buoying you up. You know, feels great, but but also I think that there's a scholar that I really like, Daniel Heath Justice, and he he writes this book called Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. And he really, he opens it with this idea that every single person is shaped by story. That's what makes us people, distinct peoples. And so you and I, we have our own stories that we have shaped for ourselves, but every single person is born into a context of stories. And so it might feel more apparent to you because of the difference in the stories that are the context of being in Alaska. But I might, you know, I might have the same questions for both of you. Like, what is your experience being shaped by the stories that are the context of where you are? It's just what we live and breathe. I love this idea that we're all walking around and we are the sum of those stories that we've been told and they've become part of our, our sort of DNA, I guess, and our certainly our sort of cultural position is is informed by them. I loved the scene just thinking about how we are sponsored this this episode by True Detective. And I know, Tia, that you've watched some of the show and I loved the scene where we saw there was a young child, a toddler, who'd drawn, I think, a picture of Sedna mm-hmm. in a multicultural house. And there was some kind of discussion and maybe even a bit of tension there about how those traditions and those stories were being handed down. And it's that scene rings more true to me now, the way that you're talking about how how those stories really do become part of us and we absorb them and they are what we take out into the world. So that's that's really interesting. I wonder, I mean, have you have you watched the show? Did you see that scene? 
Yeah, so I watched the first two episodes and I was drawn in and like a little nervous. I, I hope we're not going to provoke anything with this show. But I think, I, you know, I loved seeing the, the image of the toddler drawing that picture of Sedna with her blood just streaming from her fingers. And I think, you know, one of the things that it reminded me of is that this tradition of protecting childhood innocence is actually, I think, a British invention and it's fairly recent. Like, if you look at older stories like the Brothers Grimm, the fairy tales, they're they're pretty dark. They're really dark, and yeah. They're really dark. And those were stories for, for adults, but also for children. And, you know, t- to be a child, I think that they're m- way more capable of understanding the world as a complicated place that is full of light and dark and... Maybe we do a disservice to them when we are hiding those truths from them. You know, when I was a child living in Utkagvik, it, you know, it, it was a, there was danger there and dan- there's danger in Alaska and everywhere because of the elements and because of our place as humans, not over nature, but as a part of nature. And I remember dog mushing out on the Arctic ice and I had my own dog team. And I remember my uncle was like, don't fall off your sled. You'll get eaten by a polar bear. We won't be able to find you in time. And I, that was, it was a really, I was, I knew that that was true. And, and so I, you know, if I had ice on my runners, if I had fallen, if I was being drugged, like I did not let go of my sled because I did not want to get eaten by a polar bear. That was a reality of life there. Just respecting that we are not over nature, we're a part of it. And eventually our bodies get to, you know, feed the life that will continue to feed the lives of people. I think that is a perfect place for us to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the opposing, I suppose is one word we could use, set of stories that are told about Alaska, and those are the ones created by the colonisers themselves. We'll return with the rest of this episode in a few minutes, but we wanted to take five to tell you about the new series of True Detective Night Country, starring Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese, as it's actually sponsoring this episode of After Dark. Now, this is the fourth season of True Detective, and it's the first set in Alaska. But if you haven't seen any of the other series, then that doesn't matter, which is good because I haven't seen any of the other series. I'll be watching them now. But you can come to this with a fresh mind, and all of the episodes are available to watch on Sky TV. Now we've watched the first couple of episodes and I have to say, I really love this show. Anthony, what are your thoughts on it? We have the incredible actors, Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese, just leading the pack. And the dynamic between the two of them is incredible. As an actor myself, it's incredible to watch the two of them work and play off one another and balance each other out as well. It's one of the things you look for in a drama series. I don't know, what did you think about their relationship and their working relationship? No, I completely agree. And when we meet Jodie Foster, she is this kind of hard detective in this really difficult landscape in a really difficult community. And Kaylee Reese is a kind of rookie, a sort of outsider character, I guess. Like she has presumably been a detective, but she starts, she's been demoted. There's some kind of historic trouble or tension between the two of them that's going to unfold through the series. That absolutely drew me in immediately. For me, 
the claustrophobia of the show is so paramount. The fact that it all takes place in the dark. The whole story is set during polar night. There is no natural sunlight during the day, during the night. It's just pitch black the whole way through. And it creates this feeling of mounting dread, I think. Um, I'm only on episode two at the moment and I'm already absolutely hooked. I just feel so much for this community. You feel like you're out there in the snow, on the ice, isolated with everyone. It draws you in though, right? Because there's so many... There's so many different mystery dramas that you could tune into. And often I find myself kind of wondering as I'm watching them because you've seen the formula before, you've experienced some of these hurdles that they have to get over. But there's something about this series of True Detective where we are invited into a very, I think it's it's kind of what you're describing, this very complete world where the set pieces are absolutely gorgeous. There is this, I don't want to give too much away, but there is this, set piece, I suppose is the best way, this ensemble set piece that they take into a local gymnasium. And as the second episode goes on, it starts to defrost. I'm not going to go any further than that, but it is A, very gruesome, B, intriguing. It's, it's a clue of sorts that's starting to reveal itself in the narrative, but it's also and when you watch it, you can you can see if you agree with me on this. But there's also something very artistic about it, something very beautiful about it. So you're constantly kept intrigued by, yes, the story, but also this kind of beauty that surrounds some of the harshness that takes place in this Alaskan landscape. Anthony, it's, it's fascinating to me that you love Jodie Foster. You love to watch her as an actor. You can really appreciate her craft. I'm coming at this as a viewer. And for me, Jodie Foster is just the epitome of that kind of really gruesome, exciting, psychological, true crime, thrillery uh, genre on, on the big screen on TV. And I think for, of course, in Silence of the Lambs, she's this kind of classic icon of this kind of TV. And she really doesn't disappoint in this. I think this is another iconic role for Jodie Foster. And I'll tell you why I think so, because she, you know, you and I and the team at After Dark, we always pride ourselves in being storytellers when it comes to telling these histories. Jodie Foster is the consummate storyteller. When she is communicating these scripts to the audience, she just has a way of getting directly to us in our living rooms so that it feels like a really immediate experience that we are going through with her and the rest of the ensemble. So she is, I think, at the top of her game and... I actually, I can't wait to see more from her over the whole series, because like you, I'm, I'm up to, to episode two right now, and I just can't wait to see how she's going to be stretching those acting muscles over the next few episodes that are coming up. There's also, beyond the main cast that we've spoken about there, there's an incredible ensemble of lots of Brits, lots of British actors, including two from the cast of Killing Eve, I notice, which I don't know, just adds a little bit of, of appeal, I think, to, to viewers on this side of the pond. Um, the set piece that you're speaking about in the gymnasium, that has stayed with me. I've been thinking about that over the it's last great, few days. Right? I can't get it out of my head. It's such a theatrical thing and we can't give any more away. But listeners of After Dark, I guarantee you are going to enjoy the show. So if you are intrigued, and you should be, True Detective Season 4 is available to watch exclusively on Sky TV. And episodes are dropping weekly on Sky Atlantic. Go find out for yourselves. It really, really is the must-see TV at the moment.
1893 at the Chicago World Fair and historian Frederick Jackson Turner is delivering a eulogy on the American frontier. He says, The frontier is the line of most rapid and effective Americanization. The place where the wilderness masters the colonist, strips his old ways from him, puts him in the log cabin of the Cherokee, before, little by little, the colonist transforms the wilderness not into a version of the old world he's come from, but into a new product that is American. He ends with the lament that now, four centuries from the discovery of America, the frontier has gone. Meanwhile, in Alaska, the famous environmentalist John Muir is bestriding mountains and glaciers, declaring in rapture that, to the lover of pure wildness, Alaska is one of the most wonderful countries in the world. Here was the last frontier, a wilderness waiting to be shaped by those who felt themselves worthy of shaping it. Um, beautiful accents. Well done. <laughs> Applause. Um, okay, so we've had this idea of living in tandem with the land that indigenous culture gives us, this idea of being in conversation with it and telling stories that warn of its dangers, um, but very much that look to collaborate and respect it. I think this is a very different perspective on the same landscape, isn't it, Tia? It's, it's an idea of of conquering and controlling the wilderness. So when does this idea of Alaska as the last frontier, as this great wilderness, when does this take hold? You know, I I want to comment a little bit on John Muir's rapturous writing about Alaska. It, it calls to mind, like, I don't know if you all are familiar with the American designer, Lisa Frank, who makes those <laughs> folders and they've got all like leopard print and unicorn. I just, I'm, I'm imagining John Muir bestride a mountain. It's like, he's just like riding a white tiger with lasers shooting <laughs> out of their eyes. And there's like unicorns and rainbows and <laughs> stardust, et cetera. Um, it really, it's very rapturous the way that he's. And when you think about the indigenous people's interactions with John Muir, I imagine that they might have seen him in that way because he was so reckless and so unwilling to listen to his guides. The And also doesn't really acknowledge their presence as he's in Alaska. It's really like he is he sees Alaska as this really empty space, just ready for Americans to like construct their identity here, but just like ignoring the lived human experience and relationship with land. So John Muir, he's the sometimes considered the father of like the national parks. I don't want to hate on national parks. And, you know, I don't want to hate on John Muir's love of nature. I also love nature and enjoy going to a national park. And so I don't want to really villainize that. But but I do think that it is really interesting if we start to critically think about, you know, wilderness and what wilderness is. It's not really that, you know, wilderness is there waiting to be shaped or conquered by settlers, but wilderness is really a construct of the settler imagination. And as a construct of settler imagination, it's there waiting to shape settlers into true Americans. And in that way, the settlers become the arbiters of what a true American 
is and also wilderness the way that they've configured it in their imagination becomes of utmost importance and so that has real consequences on land and the people who live there for example the community that I'm from of Anaktuvik Pass is in the Brooks Range, and we have lived in that area for, you know, since time began, a very long time. However, in 1980, that land where we are from and is a part of us became a national park. And so with that, you know, settlers have certain ideas of what can happen in a national park. And so they were like, oh, wait, you guys are living there? You can't live there. It's a national park. Oh, hunting? You can't hunt there. It's a national park. Or wait, are you using snow machines to get to to the caribou herds? You, you know, you can't do that. It's a national park. And so I think wilderness as this pure, pristine figment of settler imagination they have imagined that there's one way of interacting with it. And it's usually you have a lone person who is like, you know, roughing it with their hiking poles and their dehydrated food and they're finding themselves. And what they're finding is their identity as a true American. It comes back as well to the idea we were talking about earlier, a very Western idea of individualism and sort of contrasted with more indigenous values of community. And I think the wilderness in, in the settlers' minds, particularly in the 19th century, as you say, it's all these lone figures, lone men in particular, bestriding like a colossus, you know, across these mountain ranges <laughs> and, and sort yeah. of therefore proving themselves worthy of something within their own culture. It's reminding me as well of, we did an episode on uh, the Erebus and Terror expeditions to find the Northwest Passage in uh, the 1830s and 40s, when Franklin takes his men uh, from Britain and it ends terribly. They have to eat each other. It's awful. And in, in that story, they come into contact with indigenous peoples in the region that they're in. And when they do that, the people they're coming into contact with try to explain to them that they're interacting with the landscape in a way that is dangerous, that they're not going to survive. And, you know, they, they pass these men out on the ice and actually they all die because they don't take any notice and because they haven't really understood the landscape that they're going into because they see it as this thing to conquer or this thing to prove themselves in, that it's going to be, it's somehow going to reflect their greatness back at them. And of course, it's such hubris that it ends horribly. And, and I can really see that idea here as well. Am I right in thinking that on Alaskan number plates today, it still says the last frontier? Yeah, or north to the future. That's another one. You know, I think that it's a lot of people think about the concept of manifest destiny or the concept of colonization or the patterns of it as something that happened a long time ago and it's finished now. But the relationship between indigenous people and the United States is a relationship of settler colonization. And that's an ongoing relationship of settler colonization. And I think that that these like older or maybe outdated notions of manifest destiny have just morphed into newer phrases like the last frontier or north to the future. It also has this implication when you were talking earlier about 
concepts of wilderness and the settler concept of wilderness where wilderness almost equals nothing whereas actually what you have been describing is abundance as opposed to nothingness and so it's value systems that have been placed on the idea of wilderness that is in conflict I think. There's this theory from John Locke who I'm sure you're both familiar with he's a British again British philosopher he has this notion of the labor theory of value which is how property is created and Property is created by mixing one's labor with the land or with an object or enclosing it. And so one of the moral legal justifications that colonizers used in order to dispossess Native people from land was that this idea that they weren't using it properly because land is supposed to be either enclosed or extracted from. And I you know, I think that one modern day manifestation of that is a lot of times when people look at or imagine like vast swaths of land from urban areas in the United States or Canada, they often talk about the resource potential of that land. And I, I think that that is like some kind of anxiety that is around, well, we have to continue to justify our ownership of this place. And since the notions of property are so embedded in this like way of seeing land as a resource or something that is enclosed, it, it feels like a modern day way of, of like that anxiety is kind of like peeking through like, yes, we actually own that land, but how can we convince ourselves of that? Like, oh, because there's resource potential there. And, you know, in the past, a lot of that resource potential has been around like extracting oil. But I think now one of the ways that it's talked about as a resource is as, you know, a carbon trap or the, these ecosystems need to stay intact in order to like keep our climate in balance. But it's also kind of like a resource way of thinking about that land. Absolutely. Now, Tia, one of the things that you work on is modern day stories that are told about Alaska. We've thought a little bit about how some of the legacies of these particularly 19th century settler narratives are coming through in today's politics or in terms of the, the modern day relationship with the land in Alaska. But let's think a little bit about art. And of course, we can't necessarily separate politics and art here, but thinking about how Alaska is shown on on the screen, but also, you know, there's there's been a sort of influx, for example, of stories about UFOs, of cryptids, that kind of thing in, in this landscape. And, you know, thinking about the emptiness of the supposed emptiness of it and this idea of filling it with something to explain that. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, are there trends in how people tell stories about the Alaskan landscape? Do you see some of these historic ideas coming through today? Or are people inventing new ways to think and write about the landscape? Patrick Wolf has this where he talks about the structure of settler colonialism as being an ongoing event and also structures that don't have to take a single form. It's like any, any story that is about in eliminating indigenous people's sovereignty over land in the present or in the future is doing the job of settler colonialism. And I think that as people become more critical of past narratives like Little House on the Prairie or Last of the Mohicans or even Frederick Turner's eulogy of the frontier, 
we it's really easy to like pat ourselves on the back and recognize those as dangerous or harmful narratives but we really are continuing to make narratives that don't recognize indigenous people's sovereignty over land in the present and they don't imagine indigenous people's sovereignty over land in the future and i think that those narratives are dangerous. They have historical consequences that we've seen. They have political consequences. They have social consequences because settler law and logic create conditions for the inevitable disappearance of Native people through eliminatory, eliminatory structures like the way that they're arbiting who is Indigenous or who's American or who is Alaskan. And I think it's really important to highlight the way that imagination really has these tangible consequences that affect and shape the world that we live in. Do you have a suggestion for a story about Alaska, whether it's a novel, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a TV show that you feel goes beyond these limitations and these issues and that can give us a hopeful, more inclusive version of Alaska? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I have one million suggestions. <laughs> we have time, go through but... them all. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if I were going to plug something right now to your audience that I think would be of interest and is really exciting to me is... James Donick Jr. is an Inupiaq storyteller, and he created a couple years ago this story called Midnight Sun. It's an audible story, so it kind of is genre fluid in, in terms of bringing that oral storytelling tradition to a modern day context. But he very recently came out with this new series called Alaska is the Center of the Universe, where he talks about the other than human relatives and uh, figures that sh are part of the storytelling context of Alaska and he just includes such a diverse cast of voices and he does it in such a respectful way. I'm really excited about that one. And then of course if you're interested in learning more about settler fantasies and how they shape modern day Alaska, I would suggest The Alaska Myth, which is another podcast series that I worked on with Caitlin Armstrong. And I think that she's done really tremendous work and included a lot of diverse voices as well. So I would recommend those two for now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tia, thank you so much for joining us on After Dark. What a wonderful way to end my day. I know you're just beginning yours there, but I hope I hope it gives you some energy and some creativity going forward because I know I'm, I'm really uh, inspired by our conversation today. Where can people find you? Are you on social media? Is there a way people can read some of your work? Because I think loads of our, our, our listeners would be interested to, to know more about you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be here. I so again, and I'm a professor of Alaska Native Studies at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. My name is Tia Anna Tidwell. My new back name is Puya. I'm named after my Anna's sister. And so you can find me that way. I'm on social media a little. I like to, <laughs> one of the things I really like to do, I have this social media series that's about gifts of Nuna, which are, I, I really am interested in traditional plant medicine and like the ways that plants heal us. And so I'll share information about the, you know, the plants that are near and dear to my heart and how we can and use them. So, yeah. 
we would love to have you on another episode to talk about that if you would be happy to come back. Honestly, I would be. This is my favorite, I think, way to share information. Being in academia, a lot of the way that knowledge it's almost sequestered in ways that aren't accessible to the communities that we're meant to serve. And I think being an Indigenous scholar, it's really important for me to share knowledge in ways that are impactful to the people that I want to serve. And so I, I really love the form of podcasts. Yeah. So any anytime y'all okay, want to talk we'll, about we'll, anything. We'll come back to you because that, <laughs> yeah. that sounds absolutely yeah. incredible. Um, Maddie, do you want to do you want to take us out? Yes, I sure do. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of After Dark Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. If you've enjoyed it, you can leave us a review. You can follow Anthony and I and indeed Tia, our guest today, on social media. And we will see you next time. This episode was sponsored by True Detective Night Country. It's available to watch on Sky TV and episodes are dropping weekly on Sky Atlantic. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.